Hello, and welcome to the Better Strangers podcast. This is week two, and I apologize in advance for what this week's podcast sounds like. I did it a few months ago, kind of as a voiceover version of one of my articles. Um, It's super echoey, and I also, like, I think I talk through the footnotes at the end, which is probably not how I'm going to do this in the future, but I've still got one week left at my actual job before I'm doing this full time, and so I'm kind of putting in some filler here. Uh, Regardless, I think it's an interesting article. Uh, This one is the one I did on um, an atheist argument for the existence of gods, so I hope you enjoy. I've been an atheist since I was roughly 16 years old, and when you become an atheist at that age, you're absolutely insufferable about it. Everyone needed to know my opinions. I argued with people at the youth group I attended, I went deep into Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, and I generally talked about God a whole lot more than most believers do, which made me super fun to be around. But this began to fade. I met the famed atheist Richard Dawkins in 2011, and over the course of the maybe 10-minute long meeting, I began to suspect that his hatred of Islam was less a matter of principle and more a matter of bigotry. I also began to see just how often atheistic enlightenment rhetoric was being used in service of right-wing religious projects like the invasion of Iraq and the occupation of Palestine. I also started to take Ursula Le Guin's maxim to heart. To oppose something is to maintain it. If I didn't believe in God, why spend so much time in opposition to him, or her, or them? As I've grown older and my feelings towards my childhood Catholicism have become a little less heated with distance, I've started to become more interested in a different question. If I'm right, and I still think I am, and there's no such thing as God, then why do humans literally everywhere still believe in one? Or many, for that matter. There are gods in virtually every culture, and when humans do abandon literal gods, they tend to find new things to worship, like, say, a particular country's flag, or a strong and fearless leader, or a set of ideals. Setting aside the argument that the religious make, that this is somehow proof of a god, which I find unconvincing, how does one explain mankind's love of gods? There are a few answers that I found particularly interesting. In his short ebook, Our Pet Queen, the nonfiction writer John Higgs suggests that the reason humans invented gods was their love of symmetry. This was an evolved love in that it was something that many generations of creatures learned the hard way. You ignore symmetry at your own peril. Imagine you are an early human on an open plain or in a subtropical jungle, and your eyes skim over the landscape. If they pass something symmetrical, you'd be wise to be immediately on your guard. This is because, if you're in untamed nature, anything symmetrical is likely to be a face. It could be the face of a lion waiting in a bush. It could be the face of a gazelle that you would like to eat. It could be the face of an enemy lying in wait. It could be the face of a friend who wants to help you kill that gazelle or that enemy. Or it could be the face of someone sexy who wants to do sexy things with you. Symmetry, for human purposes, means important. The most fundamental urges a human has are to eat, fuck, and avoid death. And symmetry plays a role in achieving all three. This explains why humans crave symmetry on a deep, subconscious level. We fit it into our art, into our architecture, and into our very concept of beauty. We find, for example, people with more symmetrical faces to be more attractive. This quirk of survival, Higgs explains, has a weird side effect. This is a quote from the, from the book. Time passed and cultures grew, and early humans encountered more abstract concepts, such as war, wisdom, or love. These may not have been physical objects sitting in our field of view, but they still exhibited behavior which impacted on our lives and they needed to be thought about. The most natural way of doing this was to use the same neurological wiring that dealt with predicting the actions of physical external entities. This worked fine, but there was a side effect. When we thought about these abstract concepts, we, would not, we could not help but consider them as individual conscious entities themselves. That was what the paths in our brains we were used to using performed to do. 
war, wisdom, and love became personified. The ancient Greeks, for example, called them Ares, Athena, and Aphrodite. The same process applied to inanimate things that physically existed, but whose behavior still needed to be monitored, such as the fire or the sea. In this way, the polytheistic pantheon soon became crowded. Human beings were neurologically hardwired to personify unpredictable concepts. We could not help but invent gods. Unquote. By ascribing a personality and a character to these massive, seemingly indifferent forces, we could imagine dealing with them in the way that we deal with other personalities in our lives. It's not the incomprehensibly vast ocean that we're speaking of, it's Poseidon. We could avoid making him angry and incurring his wrath, wrath by doing nice, nice things for him, like slaughtering a calf, which we would usually only do for an honored guest. If the, if the sea still swallowed us when we left on our voyage, we must have done it wrong. This wasn't a chaos behind our, beyond our understanding. It was an emotional creature responding to some affront. And I've got a um, gif here of George Costanza, that scene from the one Seinfeld where he's saying, like, the sea was angry that day, my friends, because um, it's ridiculous to talk about the sea being angry. But yeah, anyway, you get it. Uh, we worshiped gods as a way of soothing our anxiety about all of life's chaos. It put things into terms we could understand. If you accept this understanding of a god, then there is a literal sense in which gods do exist. Poseidon might not be real, but the ocean is. Thor may be a myth, but thunder isn't. There's a second explanation for the existence of gods, which comes from my favorite comic book writer, Alan Moore. Favorite writer in general, really. Uh, I'll share the bit from his Jack the Ripper story from hell, and I'll read it out here, but it's the, the guy who is Jack the Ripper saying this. Um, but he's kind of got like a whole fucked up view, but it is kind of cool. Um, Scorn not the gods. Despite their non-existence in material terms, they're no less potent, no less terrible. The one place gods inarguably exist is in our minds, where they are real beyond refute in all their grandeur and monstrosity. Moore has often said publicly since that after he wrote that line, he realized it was true, and they would, he would have to rearrange his entire worldview around that fact. That led to a whole midlife crisis where he left mainstream comics to do mind-bending psychedelic projects, and he declared himself a magician. Now, God exists in the mind may not obviously lead you to, uh, I do magic now, so I'll explain it a little bit more. In Moore's understanding, just because something is fictional doesn't mean it isn't real. Uh, in an interview he did with Matthew de Abidua, he put it this way. This quote, I happen to believe that most of the important things in the material world start out as fiction, that everything around us was once fiction. Before there was a table, there was the idea of a table, and the idea of a table before tables was fiction. This is the most important world, the world of fictional things. That's the world where all of this starts. That's the end of the quote. Uh, Moore has had plenty of personal experience with his fictions coming to life because Moore is also the writer of the comic V for Vendetta, in which an army of masked anonymous anarchists overthrow the government. The mask is the famous Guy Fox mask. A couple decades after he created this Guy Fox mask with uh, artist David Lloyd, it became the de facto symbol of the anonymous hacker movement, which is aligned with anarchism, and also became ubiquitous among the anarchist Occupy protesters. Something that started in Moore's brain bled out into reality that was totally outside of his control. Moore realized that if one accepted that gods were fiction, but also fiction was real, then one could be very intentional about which gods one chose to worship. He chose an ancient snake god with fabulous long hair named Glycon, but he made the point that one could make anything, could make anything one was dedicated to into a god and actively encouraged young writers to treat the craft as if it were a god. The reasoning applies to any vocation, not just writing. 
Say you decide to dedicate your entire life to, just to pull out a random example, making delicious food. Might it not be useful to think of the culinary arts as a god that one must undertake certain rites and rituals to appease? And might the sacrifices that one must make in the service of that god, in terms of money and time, not to mention blood, sweat, and tears, feel more meaningful if it was in the service of a relationship rather than an abstract concept? Might treating food as something sacred mean that you'd put in an attention to detail that would make for really delicious food? All of this has a vaguely hippie-ish vibe to it, but Moore doesn't talk about the new agey word spirituality. Instead, he speaks of consciousness, our experience in the human mind, which he sees as a valid type of reality with different, bendier rules than that of the outside physical world. While the scientific method is the best tool for trying to learn about objective reality, or the real world, it is not the best tool for exploring our consciousness. For that, we need things like art, and dreams, and psychotherapy, and creativity, and, if you're game, uh, psychedelic drugs. For this, the exploration of consciousness more suggests that the name of the tool we must employ is magic. Now, I am, no, I am now in my 30s, and I still call myself an atheist when I speak to the people who are religious or who say that they're uh, spiritual but not religious. Uh, and this is because whatever they see as God is probably not the same thing as what I believe in, and I don't particularly want to have a semantic argument with them about uh, what they mean by God. Uh, but I do subscribe to Moore's idea of God. Moore, like myself, identifies with anarchist politics, and in that movement, one of the more common slogans is uh, no gods, no masters. The idea behind this is that you should reject anything that claims authority over you without your permission. Your life is your own. It does not belong to a god, a boss, or a president. Or a patriarch, or a Supreme Court judge, or whatever the fuck you hate. Um... But it's the permission bit that is key here. Most anarchists don't mind putting someone in charge of a specific job or project as long as it's done with everyone's consent, and that consent, of course, can be immediately revoked if the leader violates their trust. So a world in which we pick our gods is one that I can get behind without having to feel like too big of a hypocrite. Because I have abstract ideals that I hold in high regard. Things like curiosity and wisdom and freedom. And there are faceless huge forces that I have respect for, like nature, the ocean, or the inevitable heat death of the universe. Might I be better able to center myself around these ideals, or better better consider these forces in my everyday life if I treated them as gods? Atheists don't like that type of talk, of course. Um, There's something slightly irrational in picking and choosing one's gods in the way that one would choose a hobby or a career, and atheists are not a fan of irrationality. But I do not think anyone who has lived through the past few years could reasonably argue that we humans are totally rational creatures. As Higgs puts it in Our Pet Queen, uh, just because you are pro-rationality, it does not logically follow that irrationality is your mortal enemy. We can and should be good friends with irrationality. Like all good friends, we would be under no illusion as to what its character is really like, but we would also recognize that for good or for ill, it is part of our life and that we benefit from its company, and that its influence help makes us who we are. To deny this is to fool ourselves. End quote. This is still, to be clear, an atheistic conception of the world, but it's one that provides a bit more room for gods, monsters, nonsense, and all of the fun things that come with having a big imagination without capitulating to the violence and domination that's so often committed in the name of the irrational bits of our existence. It's a little bit more magic. Uh, So that is the end of today's article. I had, like, some long... um, uh, again, I keep trying to do the David Foster Wallace thing, so I've got a ton of these these footnotes, and uh, they didn't like flow well into like me reading it, so I'm just going to read them kind of like now. Uh, the first one I wanted to talk about was the the book that I mentioned, Our Pet Queen. I I have not linked to it. Uh, I've not linked to the um, 
uh, the affiliate link in my article because it's only available on Amazon and I don't want to give them money. I will tell you that if you're going to give like a few bucks to Amazon, uh, that book is the best thing I can think of to spend it on. Um, but I'm not going to make money off of it because it makes me feel creepy. Um, but it's a short book. It's like 60 pages. Um, but so anyway, his larger point in the book, it's not about gods. It's about uh, the queen of England. Uh, and his larger point is, uh, is why it makes sense for a nation to have a human figurehead like a queen. Uh, he points out that Americans don't have such a figurehead and instead uh, turn to a weird, unhealthy version of flag worship. Uh, the title of the book is his main point. Uh, he writes, and this is the quote, The monarchy are not our superiors. They are our pets. Sure, we spend too much money on them. Yes, we should have had more of the spare ones neutered. But once royalty are understood as pets, the concept of a monarchy goes from being an irrational anachronism to a wonderful solution to the problem of heads of state. It is not just that they have funny little faces. It's not that familiarity is comforting or that it's useful to have someone to blame bad smells on. It's not even a case that they are kept out of spite in the knowledge that it annoys the neighbors. It's that, at this particular stage of human development, monarchy is a system that actually makes sense. I don't think I agree with that, but I fucking love the idea of the Queen of England being an expensive pet. Um, the second uh, footnote that I had that I didn't, couldn't really work in was around Glycon, which was the, uh, the snake god um, with fabulous hair that Alan Moore worships. Um, and so I put down here, Glycon turned out to be a hoax committed by a false prophet who actually just made a sock puppet that looked like Glycon and tricked a bunch of people into joining his cult around this talking sock puppet. Uh, the fact that his chosen god was openly a hoax has only made Glycon more appealing to Alan Moore. I do have a picture of that on the page, by the way. Uh, he does have fabulous hair. Uh, and the final one was uh, in terms of talking about myself as an atheist now. I still call myself an atheist, but I said, uh, I wrote, I also don't go with agnostic, which is an equally valid label for what I am, mostly because the religious seem to take this as, uh, ah, this means he can be brought back into the fold. And I'm sorry, these new ideas of God are too interesting for me. I really could never, ever, ever, ever go back to the old boring Catholic stuff. Um, but you call yourself an agnostic and Catholics are going to try and try and bring you back. Um, cool. So that's the end of this week's. I actually kept it a little bit shorter this time. It was over 2,000 words, but it was under 2,500. So uh, I'm learning to edit a little bit better. Um, once again, please leave comments. Uh, like it if you can. Please share this if you enjoy it. Um, if you hear anything with my recording that you think I could improve, aside from screaming children, which I cannot do anything about for a while, um, let me know. I'd love to get some feedback. Uh, I'd love to hear like more articles that you'd like to hear. Uh, I'm hoping to start doing maybe a couple things a week, including like you know um, articles that just have like interesting other interesting things that I've read or cool videos or like TikToks I've watched because you know I used to do that back with my old old blog. It was called the Friday Shit Pile. Uh, I'm not going to call it that anymore because um, well you know what I named this BS. So I don't know, fucking know, man. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you for listening. Please subscribe. Please tell your friends. Uh, love you guys, and I will talk to you next week.